Today we'll return again to these precious words of Luke chapter 7. And here in verse 28 of Luke chapter 7, we find that the Lord Jesus is describing John the Baptist as being a great man, a great man. Now, unfortunately for you and for me, we live in a day and in a society where hyperbole, exaggeration, and overstatement is common. It's common within our daily conversation. And that's because pride rules most every thought and behavior in our daily life. And again, one of the words that we so often use within our prideful striving is the word great. We use that word a lot. We'll even say, we went to a great restaurant the other night. But we also use it when describing people. We'll say, this person was a great leader, or they're a great philosopher, or a great scientist. And it goes on and on. We're always adding the word great in front of the prideful compliment that we're paying to a person. And in some ways, and to some extent, There truly are some great men and women among us. I especially like to refer to some men as being great Christian theologians or great Christian teachers or preachers. And in some small ways, they truly seem to be great. Again, here in today's passage, the Lord Jesus chooses to use this word great. He uses it to describe John the Baptist. But folks, may I say that there was no pride involved in this compliment of John. It was a simple, profound truth. On this occasion, two of the followers of John the Baptist had been sent to Jesus to ask if he truly was the coming Messiah. And Jesus had just finished answering their questions when he said these words here beginning in verse 27 of Luke chapter 7, speaking of John the Baptist. Listen to these words. Verse 27, this is he, John the Baptist, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. And that's speaking of the Lord Jesus, that John the Baptist would prepare the way of the Lord. Verse 28, for I say to you, among those born of women, there was not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now I must confess to you that for all the years that I've been reading those particular words concerning John the Baptist, I've only dwelt on the first part of verse 28. And I haven't ventured too far into and given adequate consideration to the last part of that verse. Listen again to verse 28. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. The first words of this verse are powerful, powerful compliment to this man, John the Baptist. The greatest of all endorsements that could ever be given to him in his ministry as a prophet. And as I've said to you on other occasions, of all the people that we would want to say good things about us and on our behalf, Of all the praise that we might receive from people over our lifetime, there's no witness. There's no testimony that we should desire more than the witness and the testimony of the Lord Jesus. It is He 
that will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. It is his praise and his acceptance alone that will make the difference both in this life now and in our eternal life to come. And so you and I want him to say those kinds of things. And then note too in these words, the length to which Jesus goes with these words, saying that there never has ever been a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Now remember folks, Jesus is God. And he's not given to exaggeration or hyperbole or overstatement as you and I are apt to do in our conversation. This is pure truth. Among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Not Abraham, not Isaac, or Jacob, or David, or Moses, or Isaiah. None of them. Jesus is telling us here that none of them were greater than John the Baptist. Now, we need to ask ourselves, why would that be so? Why would that be so? Why would John have such higher honor than all those other great men? Folks, it's because worth and honor and greatness are measured very differently on God's scale. Measured very differently than what you and I are accustomed to. And while we can't know all that God counts as worthy, three of the most important conditions of worthiness are given to us here within these words. First of all, it's the uniqueness of the calling that's given to a person. And then secondly, it's the humility within the heart of the person as they go about their calling. And then thirdly, is the faithfulness with which that person carries out their calling to completeness. Now, why would I reach immediately for those three measurements? It's because those exact measurements were found in the Lord Jesus as he carried out his calling. Listen to these words given to us in Philippians chapter 2. We're told there that let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross." A very special and unique calling was placed upon the heart of the Lord Jesus. He was to lay aside his crowns of glory, humble himself, and be born of one of those lowly created beings that he himself created, becoming like them in their suffering. And then to die on the cross to make them holy. That was his calling. And with great humility, Jesus was faithful to carry out his calling. And note within these words describing Jesus that there really is no hyperbole, no exaggeration, no overstatement. With him also, it's just simple truth. But in his being, Jesus truly was God of creation. He was maker of all things, king of kings and lord of lords. And he should rightfully have come to this earth adorned in robes far greater than Solomon's. But he instead humbled himself laid aside all of his glory, and he came among us as little more than a peasant. And while he should have been received in a better fashion than any other king on the earth, he was instead despised, rejected, spit upon, and killed. And through it all, he did not lift a proud hand to stop them. Folks, we're told in these scriptures he could have called 10,000 angels, or he could have simply spoken 
as He will do in the last days. He could have simply spoken and all of existence would go out of existence. He could have simply spoken and all living creatures would have perished immediately upon the earth. But that was not His calling and that was not His purpose. His calling and His purpose was far greater than any of the mistreatment that He would receive. He had come to defeat sin. He had come to defeat sin on the earth and to redeem men and women's souls from their bondage to sin. And He was faithful to that calling, even unto death. And some of those same measurements can be seen in this prophet John the Baptist. No, John was not a king, but he really was rightfully a priest of the highest order. He was the son of a priest, and he deserved human respect. But with great humility, John laid it all aside to carry out his unique calling. He would spend his days wandering in the wilderness, dressed in camel's hair, eating locusts and wild honey, and giving forth a message that no man before him had ever given. The proclamation that the kingdom of God had come to the earth. That the king of all kings had come to the earth. That long-awaited Messiah had arrived. The one who would save us from our sins. He was the one that was prophesied about in the book of Isaiah. And then spoken about right here in verse 27. Listen again. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. John was to prepare the way of the Lord Jesus by calling all men and women to repentance, to repentance for their sins. And absolutely, that is an absolutely essential step in the pathway to salvation. And yes, Jesus would bring salvation to men's souls. But folks, listen, without repentance, a soul cannot receive it. That is why God sent John the Baptist, ahead of the Lord Jesus, to prepare the way. And it was a unique calling. And it was placed upon John the Baptist. And with great humility, he carried it out to the fullest. But why would Jesus consider John's prophecy to be greater than any of those other prophets? Even Moses. It's because of the message itself. Folks, listen. Moses gave the law. And then all the other prophets... They revealed and explained the law. But knowledge of the law and efforts to obey the law are not enough. None of that can save a person's soul from their sins. Only salvation, the salvation that Jesus would bring, can do that. And John's message and calling was to prepare men's hearts to receive the Lord Jesus' salvation. And that was a far better calling than any of those other prophets that had come before him. And so John then truly was the greatest of all prophets. But then with that being said, why then does Jesus seemingly in the next few words reduce John in his importance by saying, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Jesus' words, folks, were not at all intended to denigrate or to minimize the importance of the person of John the Baptist. Jesus' words were simply a statement of truth regarding the profound difference that exists when a person's soul is able to enter fully into the kingdom of God. John was of the highest order as a prophet, but he still had the fullness of a sin nature 
remaining within him. Neither prophecy nor the law could remove that. And with the coming of Jesus the Messiah and the salvation that Jesus would bring, that law, the era of the law had come to an end. And in the Lord Jesus, a far better thing had come to the earth, the fullness of the kingdom of God. And the scriptures tell us that as John would later on be killed, that Jesus then took up this same message. The fullness of the kingdom of God was now present among men. Now, it was not yet fully effectual until Jesus would die there on the cross and he'd make that acceptable sacrifice and then he would be resurrected. But listen, the inevitable change had begun in every form of existence upon the earth. Yes, John the Baptist would be saved from his own sins, but unfortunately, his complete salvation would come from the other side of eternity. He would soon die, and as I mentioned a moment ago, at the hands of the wicked King Herod, and he would not see the kingdom of God come to full fruition on the earth. His salvation would come from looking forward to the salvation that Jesus would usher in. Folks, it would be by Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection that the kingdom of God would be fully ushered in. And once it came, it would begin to sprout then and bloom and take root throughout the entire world. Listen to these words, the way Jesus explained the kingdom of God in Luke chapter 13. There he asked the question, what is the kingdom of God like? What is the kingdom of God like? And what shall I compare it? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed, he says, which a man took and he put into his garden and it grew and it became a large tree. And the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It's like leaven, he said, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until it was leavened. The kingdom of God would begin with one person, Jesus Christ, as he died there on the cross. And then it would spread first to his disciples as he breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And then at Pentecost, as more and more began to receive the Holy Spirit, and then the kingdom of God would continue to grow. As Jesus described it in these words, the kingdom of God would grow as that mustard seed grew, turning into a tree, swelling in size. And it was going to take place just as God had purposed it to grow within the hearts of men. Listen to these words. I love these words. This is Luke chapter 17. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. You're not going to be able to see it descend upon the earth. He says, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. Now, I must confess that I do look forward to perhaps seeing the Lord Jesus bursting through those clouds along with all of his heavenly hosts of angels, mighty and powerful. And I enjoy the thought of every knee bowing and every head bowing low and every tongue confessing that he's king of kings and Lord of lords. And we may see that should our bodies tarry here on the earth. But folks, for you and me now, listen, for you and me now, this truth is what you and I need to know. His kingdom is already here among us. Through His Holy Spirit, the kingdom of God resides and grows 
within the heart and the soul of every one of us. Everyone, every person who truly believes. Those words again. Luke chapter 17 verse 20. The kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say see here or see there. For indeed the kingdom of God is within you. It's a simple truth. This kingdom of God resides within the heart and the soul of each one of us who truly believe in the Lord Jesus. And yes, you and I are far more fortunate than John the Baptist. As he lived and ministered there in the wilderness of Judea, he could only look forward to what you and I have right now. The fullness of Christ living within our hearts with pure and unsullied redemption. Think about it, folks. John the Baptist, the greatest prophet that ever lived, didn't have the simple comfort and pleasure of the Holy Spirit residing within him as you and I do. Now, yes, the Holy Spirit was in and around John the Baptist even before he was born, but not the same. It was not the same as he now dwells within you and me. It was not until after Christ had died and fulfilled his calling and purpose that the Holy Spirit was fully given. And that's who you and I have now, living within us. So yes, lowly you and me are far more blessed, far more blessed than that dear and dedicated prophet, John the Baptist. But I must ask, what are you and I willing to do with this great blessing? What are we to do? Folks, we're to do as the verses we just read tell us to do. You and I are to be as that mustard seed. And that leaven. You and I dare not just walk out of here today having enjoyed being in the Lord's house. He has a purpose for us. We're to be as that mustard seed and that leaven. We're to be the vessels through which the kingdom of God grows and flourishes and thrives. We are to purposefully, purposefully and intentionally and enthusiastically invite the kingdom of God to grow mightily within us, but also within us so much that it'll burst forth out of the boundaries of our souls, out into the souls of so many, many other people. And folks, it's so important that that be enthusiastically so, because as people observe you and me, if we are not excited about it, if we are not excited about the Lord Jesus, then those who observe us will not be excited either. So you and I, need to begin to truly enjoy this salvation that God has put within us. And we're to allow His grace to flow on out of us. And so I'd like to give you a challenge. It was a challenge that was given to a man that actually, he was probably the most responsible for me coming to know the Lord and my dear wife also. They had a challenge going on at their church. And it was ministering to a soul a day. And as I've told you this story in the past, I worked with him and so I was so handy to him. And so quite often I would be that soul that he would minister to each day. And from that, from that little seed, spring a whole life with Christ. And so I would want to challenge you. Perhaps start with just a soul a week, perhaps. A soul a week. And if that then becomes comfortable, ask God for a soul a day to minister to. We're to be as that mustard seed and that leaven. 
We're to be the vessels through which the kingdom of God grows and flourishes and thrives. Listen to these words and we'll close. Then he said, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and he put in his garden. And it grew and it became a large tree. And the birds of the air nested in it. Let's pray.